in every single narcissist. It may be dressed up differently, but the patterns are, it's like this blueprint. And it's the only psychological diagnosis that I can think of that is so, it is so predictable and it's so pattern-based and it's such a blueprint. Like depression looks differently. Like if I'm depressed, I may look differently than if you're depressed. And if I'm anxious, it'll look differently if you're anxious. Narcissism is very different. It all looks the same. Welcome back everyone to Diary of an Empath. So today's guest is a special guest because I actually had a lot of requests from my clients. Her name is Dr. Jamie Zuckerman. She is a psychologist and an expert in narcissist relationships. She also runs a podcast and is an author of the book, Find Your Calm. Dr. Zuckerman specializes in the treatment of adults presenting with anxiety, depression, relationship difficulties, adjustment to chronic medical conditions, as well as everyday life stressors. So thank you so much for coming on this show. I'm so humbled. Um, I actually had at least five or six people asking me to specifically interview you about the narcissist relationships because of stuff that they went through. And that's actually how I found your page. So I'm so humbled for you coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. That's like, so thanks. Thank you for your listeners for asking for me. I mean, me personally, I've gone through a a lot of situations that I don't necessarily, I'm not proud of, but hey, they're life experiences. I've gone through them, I've lived through them, and I've learned. And one of them is being with the narcissist. And as somebody who I'm an empath, I'm very sensitive to people, to energy. And especially in my past, I have tended to attract people that need to be fixed. And I have found a lot of my clients who are also more on the empathic side, they also tend to attract these types of relationships. So um, tell me about yourself, your background. How did you get into this field? Is there something that attracted to you to this specific niche? So I, I would say that when I went into private practice, one of the things that I kept seeing was I saw mostly women and a lot of them were coming in with very similar experiences in their current relationships and different severities, but all kind of the same theme and pattern. Um, And so that's kind of where it really started to blossom, I'd say, because I really had to approach these because as you know, when you are a therapist treating somebody in a toxic relationship, even an abusive relationship, it looks very different treatment wise than treating somebody who's in a narcissistic relationship. And it's very nuanced space and it's very different. So I had to kind of change gears in terms of how I would start to kind of treat women in my practice. I had a dear friend who was going through a really bad relationship, a really bad divorce with somebody who was a narcissist, checked all the boxes and just kind of going through that experience with her and realizing that nobody talked about this unless they had gone through it. So people that had never gone through this couldn't even wrap their brain around how how unbelievably devastating and traumatic these relationships are that extend across a lifetime, even if you're no longer in them, and the trauma component to it. And I thought that it would really be beneficial to people to almost, I almost treat it as like preventative medicine. It's like you have to educate people ahead of time so they're aware of what to look for early on so they don't get into something like that. 
And I, I just didn't think too, enough people were talking about it. So that's that's kind of how that came to be. And I think what fascinates me about it from a psychological standpoint, you know, separate from having people get get better, is that it doesn't discriminate. So if you look at the patterns of behaviors across all narcissists, and we'll talk about like what is a narcissist, what's not, but if you look at it across a, across a continuum, regardless, the pattern of behavior is literally identical in every single narcissist. It may be dressed up differently, but the patterns are, it's like this blueprint. And it's the only psychological diagnosis that I can think of that is so, it is so predictable and it's so pattern-based and it's such a blueprint. Like depression looks differently. Like if I'm depressed, I may look differently than if you're depressed. And if I'm anxious, it'll look differently if you're anxious. Narcissism is very different. It all looks the same. And when patients have that aha moment, when they realize that it's predictable and they realize, they wonder like, how did you know they were going to do that? How did you... I'm not a mind reader. I'm not a fortune teller. It's because it's predictable. It's by the book. And so when they realize that there's this aha moment and it's like from that point forward, you can never unsee it. And it gives, it gives the person such empowerment. Um, and that's kind of the starting point of their disconnect. I know that was a really long winded answer, but that's why I love it. <laughs> I'm shaking my head because I'm like, yep, that's so true. When, when you realize and you start to understand the consistency and the behaviors and the patterns, it is very empowering because you're like, oh shit, yep, that's what happened with this person. That's what happened with that person. And my daughter laughs at me all the time because she's like, you think everyone's a narcissist? Because she always hears me talking to my clients and talking about my past experience. And I'm like, well, there's a lot of them out there. <laughs> so, and they, they, they have the same patterns. So let's talk about what is a narcissist and is there a difference between – because a lot of people throw this term loosely mm-hmm. about – oh, that, that person's a narcissist. But what is the difference between maybe somebody who's actually having narcissist traits versus maybe a DSM diagnosis? What does that look like to maybe the average person? Because I think us as clinicians, we know what to recognize in terms of like the clinical stuff. But I think for somebody who's listening, who maybe is in a relationship now or was in a relationship, what does that mean? What does that look like for them? Yeah, so I think we all can agree that narcissist is is thrown around left and right. Somebody cheats on you, they're a narcissist. Somebody is abusive, they're a narcissist. And I'm not minimizing their experiences, but there is a very big difference between an asshole and a narcissist. It's kind of like all narcissists are assholes, but not all assholes are narcissists, is what I tell people. So if you, again, you look at it on a continuum. Every single one of us has narcissistic traits. We all do. And so like you and I right now, because we're talking about things that we know about our narcissistic traits, maybe are a little bit raised up right now. The difference is we know how to rein them back in, right? We know when to smooth them out, not have them at all. And so that's healthy. Narcissistic traits are what motivate us. They keep us engaged. They give us information about our world. They help people become successful, you know, it's kind of like almost like I want to say like good energy. It's good to have that. If you totally lack, so I'll use my pencil, but if you totally lack narcissistic traits, right, you end up on the end of the continuum, which is more of a kind of dependency quality to you, um, huge people pleasing, like that kind of end of things. This end, let's say, is narcissistic personality disorder. And in between, everything kind of goes back and forth based on our experiences. The further you go down towards a true narcissistic personality disorder, 
you'll see really kind of lack of empathy, right? Lack of remorse. There is a distinct difference between narcissistic personality disorder and somebody with narcissistic traits or features. And here's how I tell people to know the difference. I am not big on, you know, narcissism, oddly enough, checks boxes because it's such a blueprint, but I'm not a fan of like, you know, you didn't check all the boxes in the DSM, therefore you don't have it because everybody presents differently. There's so many variables at play. So with narcissism, I tell people, let's say somebody has what looks like narcissistic characteristics, right? Which look very similar to those of a narcissistic personality disorder. One of the key differences is if you bring to their attention their patterns of behavior, because we could easily model unhealthy patterns of behavior from childhood, right? That look narcissistic, but are not. So if you bring it to somebody's attention, you say, listen, you do X, Y, and Z. And when you do that, I feel this, this, and this. And the person like kind of is, I don't, I don't want to hurt you. Like, let's work on this. I don't realize that I'm doing it. It's hard for me to break. You know, there's, you know, or they may deny it at first, but if you go to therapy and they do the work, they can shift those, those patterns. It's like self, self insight. Correct. A true narcissist who still may present with those qualities, if you bring it to their attention, you're not going to get that. You're going to get, you're crazy. You're overreacting. No, I'm not. When they're very aware, this is the part that's hard for people. They're very aware of what they're doing. They don't care. That's the key difference. So it may be habitual because it's, it's automatic behavior for them, which is where it's hard to tell. But when brought to their attention, what do they do with that information? And a true narcissist will will do nothing with it except probably use it more against you because they know it bothers you. It's very manipulative. Very. It's, it feels like everything that is done is very calculative, is. very manipulative. It is. Everything that they're doing is for their own gain in some type of way. Do you find that with the narcissist or with narcissistic relationships, that there is some type of link to childhood or something that happens in their childhood that causes them to view the world the way that they do? So there's, there's a lot of different ways you can go with this. There's definitely research that shows that the empathetic, the part of the brain that's, you know, will light up when you're dealing with empathy, kind of structurally different. And so there's definitely research into different areas of the brain working differently, even looking differently. So there's that. What no one's really sure of is, is that the only thing that causes it, or is it that plus patterns of childhood? Does it have nothing to do with that? But your patterns in childhood kind of, you know, because your brain's very malleable when you're younger, just it kind of shape your brain into that. The other piece of it too is narcissists don't get treatment. So we have absolutely no idea what really what their brains look like. So my answer to your question would be yes, it depends on your upbringing. That's a significant part of it. Um, as children, me, you, everybody, we develop patterns in our behavior to deal with our external world. And as children, we feel out of control. So we develop ways, because we're kids are smart, develop ways to deal with our world and make sense of it. And a lot of times those coping strategies at the time work very well, let's say in a dysfunctional system, their survival, we need them to be able to get through it. The problem is, is if those coping patterns over time, as you go into adulthood and your context changes, your life changes around you, your environment changes, those coping skills don't adjust accordingly to fit with your new world. Now you have somebody who's responding to a dysfunctional system when they're no longer in a dysfunctional system. Like those coping skills are no longer needed. 
And that's, you know, that's a very superficial way of talking about how personality disorders develop, but it very much has to do with, with upbringing and how, what that looks like. It sounds like there's a lot of variables that are involved and you're right. It, it really is hard because a lot of time narcissists do not seek treatment because they, they don't. don't think anything is wrong with them. They don't think they're doing anything wrong. They don't care. They don't care. Even if they know they're hurting you, it, it, they think they're allowed to, they're entitled to, you're less than them. You're, you exist for their benefit. Why, why are they going to, they're not going to change that. And the only times narcissists really show up for treatment, and it is so short-lived, would be one, if it's court-mandated, right? Like through a mm-hmm. custody issue in the family court system, which is a whole other conversation, but something like that, or co-parenting counseling, or they get multiple DUIs, or they're in treatment for substance abuse, you know, or they were trying to do something for attention or something, and somehow it, you know, faux suicide, something like that. But I can tell you that of the people I had that came in for treatment that were narcissists, they maybe lasted once the evaluation and maybe one more, or somebody I see brings their partner in who was a narcissist and they will either walk out in the middle of the session, they'll leave and they'll you know never come back. They'll say, I, I'm a horrible therapist or they'll try to charm me. They realize it doesn't work and then I, you know, I'm terrible. So They don't present for treatment. I'm shaking my head because I went through a very similar situation, not as the therapist, but as the spouse. And I'm like, oh, yep, that's exactly what happened. I tell people not even to go to couples Mm. therapy for a narcissist narcissist and their partner is the last thing you should do. You don't Mm. go to couples therapy with a narcissist for two reasons. One, people forget that that person is scared already. They in no way, shape, or form are going to feel safe speaking up in that session to then get in a car with an angry narcissist, which is a car and driving for those of you that have been with narcissists know how dangerous of a situation that is, drive home and have to live with them. They're not going to say a word. They're going to, therapist is going to be, you know, if they don't see what's going on, it may look like the, the spouse is really trying and that the partner is not accepting that. And they may recommend date nights and it's, it's re-traumatizing. So I really recommend the individual working on themselves, not the narcissist, not, not the couples therapy. Side note, did you guys know that I'm not only a therapist, but I'm also a professional tarot reader? It's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball telling your future. It's a tool to connect with your guides and your higher self to help you in certain areas of your life. Tarot genuinely changed my life and it can potentially change yours too. Click on the link in this podcast for more info. Okay, back to the podcast. I agree. And and you made a really good point about the car, because I've heard a lot of people tell me too, that the car is where some of the most traumatic times that they can remember, because there was such a lack of control for the victim and such a, the control was just 100% with the narcissist. So talking about childhood, it makes me think about narcissistic parents, you know, when you are growing up in such a dysfunctional household with maybe a parent who is a narcissist, 
how does that shape who we are as adults? Because I, I can say that I've gone through a similar situation and, and I, I'm not here to diagnose my parents or diagnose my mom, but there's definitely some components of some personality stuff, personality disorder going on, whether it's, you know, BPD, narcissist, it's kind of bordering probably on both. And mm-hmm. I can remember my childhood being very dysfunctional and it definitely shaped who I am today, how I view relationships. I've had to do a lot of work in therapy with my own shadow work, with my own self-reflection. But the difference is I have self-awareness and self-insight. There was none there. So what have you seen that that when someone has a narcissist parent, how does that impact who they are as an adult? Does it impact? Sure. Yeah. Yes, it does. Um, and it doesn't mean you're doomed, right? Obviously, look at you know you're you're not doomed. It it's but you you have to do hard work and know it's not fair. I say that it's totally not fair, but it is your responsibility to do the work, right? So it's like this. It's really it's really difficult. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot, of, and understandably so. One of the things that I I like to let people know is if you have a narcissistic parent, that does not mean you're going to be a narcissist. And if you don't have a narcissistic parent, but another type of dysfunctional system, that doesn't mean you're not going to be a narcissist. So it's more about your response and the patterns you develop in response to the dysfunctional parenting that you're receiving. So a parent who is a narcissist, let's let's use a mom, for example. So mom narcissists typically look at their children as extensions of them. The child does, particularly daughters, but boys too, that they don't really exist as a separate entity, that they are without opinions. They are without feelings. They're without emotions. They are literally there as an accessory and they are only engaged with when needed, which is the hallmark of narcissism. So it could look like I love you. And at the same time, you look really fat today, right? So you're getting this like weird message of love, but a verbal abuse or love and physical abuse. And it's extremely confusing to a child. So, right. So, and you know, as a child, you don't, you look at your parents as your core kind of folk, as they should be, that's the problem. And, and, you know, society kind of pushes for that. So we don't think any differently. We don't ever say like, well, my parent is unhealthy. So let me go outside of that and gravitate towards, you know, another adult figure who can give me more positive feedback or positive reinforcement. So, you know, if parents tell us the sky is green, we're going to believe them, right? Because mm-hmm. they're we're supposed to unconditionally love them. They're supposed to unconditionally love us and we follow what they say. So if you have a narcissistic parent and it's, a, and it's the mom, any act on the part of the child to develop any type of autonomy – It could be having your own taste in music. It could be having your own taste in food. But anything that is different from what they want for you is viewed as abandonment and is met with rage, is met with silent treatment, is met with punishment. And the child has absolutely no idea like what the rules are because the rules keep changing. And they're walking on eggshells. They are constantly feeling like they don't know what they did wrong. So they're constantly feeling responsible for the parents' emotions, responsible for fixing the relationship, which is so far from what a child's responsibilities are. So that child could do a couple things. 
that child could develop major people-pleasing tendencies, right? Become very hyper aware of people's emotions because that was the only way they were going to get through childhood. They had to be so in tune to mom's moods to know what to do next. The problem was mom's moods were purposely inconsistent. So you were never going to get it, right? I always say this to my patients. You were, you were made to not understand this. There was no way to fix this because you weren't ever given the rules and they were not in your favor. So then you go into adulthood and you have this people-pleasing tendency, right? And this huge empathetic kind of nature and you want to fix people because that's what you know. That's where you're familiar. That's where you're comfortable. That's It feels normal for you. The problem is later in life, you continue to put your needs second and you're going to start to attract people that enable that pattern for you. So that's this extreme goes to that extreme. You also though could have a narcissistic parent who treats their child Exactly like I said, nothing they ever do is good enough. You know, you get 100, why don't you get 101? You lost five pounds because weight's a very big thing. You lost five pounds, why don't you lose 10 pounds? Or, you know, your friend did this, this, and this, and what are you doing? So that child could develop a very hardened kind of self because they need to gain some sort of control of this up, down, up, down, up, down. And they may translate that into... I'm never going to be not good enough. I am going to be the best at everything because that's my only option. Translate into adulthood, you can develop into narcissism, obviously, or perfectionism, which leads to procrastination. So like, there's a lot of different ways it can go. The only last one I will talk about, this happens a little bit more with the boys and the moms, is that the boys will sometimes you viewed as the golden child and the parents, the narcissistic parent uses this as a way to, in a way, like almost love bomb the child. It draws wedges between siblings. So they take this one sibling, put them on a pedestal. The rules don't apply to them. Nothing they do is wrong. Everything they do is, is great and amazing. So this child then views themselves as above the law, so to speak, because they see their other siblings who are not allowed to get away with this stuff. So they must be special. Mm. Take that translate into adulthood. You get narcissism. You get a lot of times you get that kind of sociopathic tendencies. You know, I can do whatever, harm whoever, and it doesn't matter because no one else really is significant. So I know that was like a massive long-winded answer, but it's like a really complicated scenario. And I just don't want people to think that if you have this, then that means you have this. It can go a million right. different ways. It's not a one size fits all, but I actually feel like I'm in a therapy session because what you were saying, I'm like, that's so me because growing up, it was very dysfunctional. I never knew kind of what to expect at any time I would have any type of autonomy, especially when I was about 13, 14. And I, I really started to become a little bit more, well, not a little, a lot of, um, uh, a little bit of, you know, just free spirited and kind of, you know, doing what I wanted to do. And I met that with rage. I met that with walking on eggshells with her. And as I grew up, not only did I have to learn how to read the room, read people to a T. So I'm, I'm a huge empath, hyper aware. And then on top of being hyper aware, I am extreme when it comes to perfectionism. I have to do everything 
as good as I can do it. And I feel like I'm superwoman sometimes and I don't know how to slow down. And I talked about this on my last episode with Dr. Jen. The reason, the root, when I was really doing some self-exploration, it's because I'm afraid if I don't do it that everything's going to fall apart and there's going to be no one there to help me because I feel like I can only depend on me. So I have to be the best I can be and it's part of my identity. But then I've learned that, well, when I did slow down and I was forced to slow down, well, the world didn't stop. It kept going. And so that was that perfectionism in me. And then the procrastination would come with the perfectionism. So it was like a domino effect. So I definitely see the links between, you know, what childhood could do having a narcissist parent and how you view the world as an adult. Mm-hmm. I was listening to your podcast and there was a podcast episode that you did. Um, your podcast is called It's Me with Dr. Z with JB. And you talked about tactics of the narcissist. So what does that look like specifically? If we can give some specific examples, if someone's in a relationship right now, I know you talked a little bit about what the narcissist looks like, but if someone's in a relationship, what are some examples of what maybe what a narcissist will do? Because we hear those terms love bombing and gaslighting a lot, but not a lot of people really understand what that means or maybe what that looks like in a relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. So Narcissists in the beginning of a relationship look very different after that first stage. So in a, in a narcissistic abuse cycle, there's three stages, some kind of like a fourth, which I'll, I'll talk about, generally speaking, three stages. And in the beginning stage of a relationship, it is very calculated. So what you'll notice is somebody who, you know, and I jokingly say this, but I don't, I'm not really joking. If you hear the word soulmate in like the first three months, four months, five months, run. Because here's the thing. I know it sounds amazing and fairy tales. And, and truth be told, who wouldn't want to hear that? We all want to hear that. And I blame Disney for that. <laughs> but like, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, um, they don't work out like that. That's not real. <laughs> um, right. There is no prince. You know, it, it doesn't work like that. So we want that. And that's how our society has kind of structured relationships. And so we have this idealized version. So there's a reason why a narcissist goes after that route, right? So things like you're my soulmate, where have you been my whole life? I cannot believe how much we have in common. I've been like, you're it. I feel it. I know it when, and it sounds great, but what I tell, what I tell people is take a step back and ask yourself this, how, and I know there's people that are going to disagree with me on this and that's, Fine. And maybe on date one, you met your soulmate and you knew it and you're still married and you're happy. I'm not disagreeing with that. It's just really rare. And I wouldn't put all my eggs in one basket for that. And it's, I'm being real. I'm not being pessimistic. How can someone be your soulmate when they don't even know what foods you like, where you like to travel? what you like to do in your free time, when your birthday is, what your middle name is, where your parents grew up. I mean, they know nothing about you. So what are they basing this soulmate perception on? And, and I'm not saying you're not wonderful, but really, what are they basing that on? So that's number one. We all know that when we start dating somebody, we, we want to be in as much contact with them as possible. It feels good, right? They play into that. So you will get text messages, communication, phone calls, constantly. I miss you. I can't wait to see you again. Um, I'm thinking about you and which again feels great, but it's also not appropriate early on in dating. There should be this boundary that even if you want to call the person all the time, you don't. 
right? So things like bombarding you at your office with flowers, you know, it's not cute. It's control-based. It's marking their territory. It's trying to get ownership of you. All of this is about trying to get ownership of you. It's not sweet, right? It's not lovey-dovey, I met the love of my life. It's control. And it's very easy for people to fall into that. You don't have to be an empath to fall into that. You don't have to be um, you know, someone who experienced trauma to fall into that. It has not, It does not discriminate. The only mm-hmm. way somebody's not going to fall into that is if they are aware of the red flags ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And they hear me saying, oh, wait, okay, that this is right. Because otherwise, you're going to fall right into it. And, and I can't blame you. Um, then what starts to happen is they'll do things that's called future faking. So they'll, they'll, they'll make promises like, I'm going to take you to Paris in six months. Um, I can't wait to get married. We're going to have three kids. Their names are going to be this, this, and this. And you talk about these promises that never happen. But they use it as a way, again, to keep you in and suck you in and hold you in, waiting for those things to happen in the future that never do. Um, or if they do, they deliberately don't happen the way that they told you they would happen. Um, then the other things to keep in mind, listen to how they speak to people. How do they speak to waiters and waitresses? Are they condescending? Are they overly engaging? Like, are they going to extremes with that? Listen to how they speak to their family. Do they even talk to their family? How do they discuss their exes? Are they victims and everything and all their exes are crazy? Um, are they going through really like multiple, like just legal stuff constantly? Um, but again, always playing that victim card. Um, trying to think of some other really good kind of, um, so when we're talking about gaslighting, oh, cause we hear you know, the gaslighting is, a lot. Yeah. So, so that doesn't happen yet, but one of the other things, and this is where the gaslighting comes into play is in the beginning of a relationship, they will purposely make you feel super, super comfortable being vulnerable. And the reason for that isn't because they care what you're saying. They don't. But what they're doing is they will match your story to make you feel like they get it. They too went through the same thing. They're lying. Narcissists are compulsive liars. They're doing it strategically and they store away your vulnerabilities back here. And they hold them for a later date Once they have you in the relationship and you kind of go into that next stage in the abuse cycle, so this devaluing stage where they really start to strip down your sense of self, your self-concept, start to isolate you from friends and family, that's when the gaslighting starts. So what gaslighting is, is a strategy, again, very manipulative. Yes, they know what they're doing for the sole purpose of trying to gain control over you, gain control over your narrative meaning the way you interpret yourself in relation to the world and gain control over your emotions. So things like, you know, um, why were you out? So you could say, why were you out so late last night? You came home at three in the morning. Where were you? They're going to go back. I was going to say card catalog, but then that makes me sound like I'm ancient. So they're going to go back (laughs) into their file (laughs) and they're going to pull out fear of abandonment that you talked about because, you know, your dad left when you were five and you've always kind of had this fear and they're going to throw it right at you and make you feel crazy by saying, relax, you're overreacting. Like I'm not your dad, you know, like 
that kind of stuff. And so they make you feel like your reality is not accurate. And so you then end up needing them to define reality for you. And that's when it becomes super dangerous because then you're in something that you don't even realize is as dysfunctional as it is. And that's kind of where we start to lose people in these relationships. That gaslighting strategy is super deliberate. Then they're left apologizing. So before you know it, they're out till three in the morning doing God knows what. You call them out on it as you should. They pull up these vulnerabilities, throw them back at you, somehow make it your fault. It's your perception. You're wrong. You're crazy. You're overreacting. And then you find yourself apologizing mm-hmm. for your actions and your interpretation. And so it, it's this vicious cycle that starts to happen. It really does a number on people's self-concept. I, I agree. I, I went through a lot of those cycles and I, I see it's very similar to the cycle of abuse. You go through these, you know, they level you up and then it's the devaluation phase and then it's like the I'm sorry phase. And and one thing that I noticed when I was in those situations is they would – so I, I met one guy maybe about about two years ago, but just the epitome of what a narcissist was. And thank God I know what to look for. But in the very right. beginning, it was the constant text, the questions about my childhood, and it was beyond a get-to-know-you. This was more That's of, right. you know – so what was it like with your dad? What was your relationship like? So what are some of the things that he would do? Just questions that were so deep that I think that if you don't know what to look for, you would mistaken this for like, oh, this person is really trying to get to know me. They care. They get to know me. They understand they me. They want to understand me. It's so, it's so boundaryless. Right. And so, you know, I'm a th- I do this all day long, right? Like you do this all day long. Like I'm very comfortable being open with people. I'm very comfortable with my friend. We share everything, you know. And so I definitely would have a tendency, right? Even knowing what to look for to fall into that trap because how amazing is it to be able to share your vulnerabilities with somebody? Like, isn't that what we all want? <laughs> exactly. Right? And I, and and I, and I, I think too, just to your point, like if people who are, were in the healing field and I think people who are just naturally empathetic, we think that people are like us. Like for me, yes. I know that I would go into yes. something and That's I'm like, a, I'm a good, good person. I want to get to know yes. them. I want to get these deep conversations. I want to know about who you are as a person. This person is genuinely good. I think they're a good person. They're presenting like a good person. So they're probably good. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. But when I started to really understand the, the manipulative factors of what a narcissist was and really trusting that gut instinct of something yeah. feels off. Something just doesn't feel right and not ignoring it, that's when I started to notice them right away. And I would go through dating within three or four weeks. And I remember a friend of mine said to me, you know, you're dating correctly. That doesn't mean anything's wrong with you. You are seeing the red flags and you're not sticking around for people them. all the time. Yes. Yes. It's not a, yes. And good for, good for you because it's, I don't know – Unless you've gone through it, and like I see this with my friend that I was talking about that, that went through this, unless you've gone through it, I don't think people understand how hard it is to date correctly when you grew up in a dysfunctional system. Correct. Because the skill sets you use for dating are naturally embedded in that dysfunctional system. You don't know you're doing anything dysfunctional because that's all you know. And it takes somebody outside objectively to kind of pull you out. And you do the hard work to be able to look inside and look at that and see a couple things. So, you know, 
most people are inherently good, right? So the, the issue isn't so much that there's so many narcissists out there, although I do, there's way more than, than we think, but mm-hmm. also it's who you gravitate towards and who gravitates towards you. So it's like we almost have a biased sample for people that are really empathetic or very caretaking, nurturing, people-pleasing because it kind of pulls for that a little bit. So th- you're right, though, in saying most people are good. They are. It's just the dysfunctional systems bring about a certain type of pattern more frequently, let's say, than somebody who didn't have that dysfunctional system. The other thing, too, that I want people to know is that in in these relationships where it looks so good in the beginning, Mm -hmm. what you're getting, that person you're getting in that love bombing stage doesn't exist. I want people to think of it as they are playing a role in a movie, and when they say cut, they're back to their normal self, right? So, you know, we see people playing parts on TV and we forget, like, that's not really them. They're just playing a role. So we'll see people playing like a really dramatic role. And then you see them on, you know, being interviewed, let's say, and they're like a totally different person. And it's so jarring, but that's their career. Imagine that in everyday life as Mm -hmm. a person who's not an actor. So you have this, this love bombing stage. And then when that devaluing starts, especially when you get into that discard phase, the reason why these relationships are so addictive in nature, and it really follows an addiction model, if you think about it, is that you never know what you're going to get. And you're always chasing that initial person that you met in the beginning. Problem is that person never existed. You'll never get it back because it was never there to start. And the level of love bombing that you're chasing, you'll never get at that level again anyway, right? It's like with, it's, it's like with drugs. You know, you'll hear people say constantly chasing after that first high because it felt so good, but it requires so much more use and so much more and just like so much more invested energy in it to even get slightly the same high, right? So it's that kind of idea that you're never going to get it and it was never real to begin with. And that is super traumatizing for people. And that's that very, very draining. Really- very draining. And, and they Very. do something, what I notice, like they'll give you little crumbs. Like, okay, well, I'm going to give you little pieces of who I Just to kind of keep you around, keep the little carrot dangling. And there was a person I interviewed, her name is Megan Doherty, and we talked about narcissism. And one example that she gave that I loved is she said, think about you as a phone. You know, we have our phones, we pick it up when we need it. We use it all the time, but when we don't need it, we throw it away. If it breaks, we get a new one. And that's how the narcissist views relationships. It's it's, oh, yeah. a, it's, a, it's accessibility. If they don't need it, they'll get a new one. If it breaks, they they might keep it around. They might that. put it down when they don't need it. But when they pick it up and they want it, they'll they'll use it. And here, I'm going to add on to that one. Meg, thank you, Megan. But like, I'm going to add on to that even more. Do you know how many of my old phones I still have, even though I don't use them? They're dead. I don't even know the passwords anymore. They're just like sitting in a pile. Narcissists, even if they're done with you, you still are on their shelf. In their eyes, you are always, they they always have ownership of you. You could be married, you could have kids doesn't matter. You always in their eye are owned by them. And when they want something from you, they'll just kind of take you off the shelf, take the phone out of the drawer and like try to figure it out and see if they still have access to it. 
Can they still get in? Do they remember the password? But once they figure out the password or they play around with it for a little bit and then it dies, like, all right, whatever, and they throw it back. So I tell people when a narcissist, because they will, comes back into your life, it may feel good, but understand they're not doing it because they miss you. They're not doing it because they came to their senses. They're not doing it because they changed. They're doing it just to see if they still have access to your emotions. That's it and that's all. I just had and this happen to so- me. I, I literally had a narcissist that I briefly dated and he randomly messages me from a different number after I've blocked him from every social Correct. media site and every yes. single phone. They don't care if you block them. No. They'll figure out another way to get you. I think you know yeah. who this is. I just want to let you know you're someone I really cared about. And I looked at the message and I'm just like, are you fucking kidding me right now? And yeah. I, I'm like, you know what? I'm not even going to give fuel to this person. Block. Buck, buck. Don't, I'm, yeah, like, I'm not going to respond. And good for you. But what about for people who don't have a choice to have contact? So maybe co parenting and they don't have a choice mm-hmm. but to have communication. What does somebody do and how do you set boundaries with someone that you have to co parent with or that you have to have a relationship with? Yeah. So there's no easy answer for this one. There, it just, it won't, it'll get better but it will never be fully easy. Um, They're never going to change. And I always tell people for somebody who leaves a narcissist and now they're in a co-parenting situation or they're going through a divorce, oftentimes it's easy to forget you wounded their ego so badly when you left. So I always tell them as far as you're concerned, like you handled them, right? Like, like you, you have so much more control over this than you realize because leaving a narcissist is like the worst type of self-abandonment they could possibly experience. They won't let you know that. It'll come out in different ways. They'll drag you through court. They'll hold your kids against you. Um, you know, they'll, they'll bad mouth you to your kids. They will show up at your work. They'll, you know, try to assassinate your character. They'll post on social media, them with their new girlfriend a week later, um, but co-parenting with a narcissist is, is no easy task. And I tell people to be extremely kind of kind to themselves when they're going through this, um, and really give yourself credit because remember that you left and it's all about boundaries and every situation is going to be different, but your response to them is always going to be the same. You only use let me back up. The only time you speak to them is if it's about the kids. And the only time you speak to them about the kids is if it's a necessary conversation, not they're upset because you said this, this, and this, and I did this, this, and this. you don't respond. Um, fact-based, as few words as possible, everything in writing. There should be not one phone call between the two of you, not one. Everything in writing, if you can get it through that court, the court app, there's a, there's a bunch of them. Um, I think it's my wizard. There's a, there's a few. Always, always have it documented. Always. Um, everything in writing, everything, if you're in the midst of the divorce, everything through your attorneys. Um, have everything as far as a schedule goes. Like you want to have everything in order so there's as little communication as possible. You know, so some people, I've had patients say, well, you know, our custody agreement is kind of a verbal thing. I'm like, nope, no, 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 no. That's That will never work mm-hmm. because you never said that. You never told me to pick the kids up at five when you just had the conversation on the phone mm-hmm. one day ago, right? 
I never said that. What are you talking about? Right? So everything in writing, fact-based, no emotion words. If you want to literally jump through the phone and strangle them, they cannot know that. Your emotion is totally flat. So it's this term called gray rock, right? It's this, it's this, you want to be so unbelievably boring that they cannot get any type of, we call it supply, right? You cannot get any type of emotional reaction from you. Like you're like a rock. You're as boring as boring could be. And what that does then is it, it causes them because they can't function without supply. They have to have it because it, it makes them exist. They will go elsewhere, whether that's to the kid, which is a different, you know, unfortunately a different situation, mm-hmm. their current girlfriend, boyfriend, whoever it is, they will go elsewhere. And that's what you want. Right. Just take it off you of you. Boring. Yeah. That makes total sense. And as, and the other thing, you know, I watched a I watched a live on this the other day, and I found it fascinating. Um, there was this whole question about, do you, you know, when the kids are going to dads, right, or the kids are going to moms, and let's say, you know, that's the narcissistic parent. Do you tell the kids, like, no, mommy still loves you, daddy loves you, because you don't want them to associate that abusive behavior with love. So, you know, I was getting a bunch of questions. How do you handle it? What do you do? And I thought it was really interesting in this talk that they recommend not saying that. I and mean, I don't work with kids, but but I found it fascinating because you're you're right. Like if you have the unconditionally loving parents who you trust, who you're vulnerable with, telling you, no, no, you know, mommy loves you, even though mommy's telling you you're a terrible human being. It's a very mixed message. Um, so you just tell them, you know, I love you. I'm here for you. If you need me, I'm here. And you let them know that you're always, always there. But you have to be careful in terms of how you talk about the other parent, not just bad mouthing them, but also, mm-hmm. you know, oh, they love you, you know, because you don't want to say that either. I love that. I that is, That's a great point. And, you know, that's something that I do with my daughter with my mom. Um, yeah. And I stopped doing that. And what I started doing is trying to model what she did is not okay. What she said in X, Y, or Z conversation is not normal or not okay. And this is what you can do the next time that this happens and trying to model skill sets and tools and to say, you know what, yes, you are 13 or yes, you, you know, you're, you're this age, but it doesn't mean that you still don't deserve respect. It doesn't mean that, you know, that this is an okay behavior just because you're a child. And I think when I started doing that, it started empowering her, but to also show her a level of compassion too, that she might be doing that because of this, but it doesn't mean that it's okay. And that's kind of the role that I tried to play when it came to that, because, you know, she's getting to the point where she sees things on her own and I don't encourage any bad mouthing or anything like that. But at the same time, if I see it, I'm going to let her know that's not something that is okay. And you shouldn't have to put up with that because I don't want her to grow up to think, oh, that's normal behavior. And that's what I should look for in a friend or in a spouse or whomever. So for somebody that's maybe getting out of a relationship or a marriage, and they've been through this abusive cycle with a narcissist, how do you heal where do you go from here? How do you start dating again? Because I know this is a, relation, a, a question that I get in relationships when people are starting to get into new ones. And now maybe for the first time, they're in a healthy relationship and they don't know how to navigate 
those unhealthy patterns from the previous relationship into this new, very, their nervous system is still activated. They don't know how to turn it off. So how does somebody navigate new relationships or getting back into dating healing after the narcissist? You, you want to, if you don't have kids and you don't have to communicate with them for any legal reasons after the breakup, you go, it's called no contact, meaning mm-hmm. you block them on everything. It's going to be hard because you're going to remember the good times. They're going to throw, as you said, those love, love bombing breadcrumbs at you. You're going to doubt your decision. You're going to come out of these relationships, not even knowing like what your favorite color is because you've been told you like green, you can only wear green. You only like vanilla ice cream. You're not allowed to have chocolate ice cream. So like you come out of this and like, I have patients that don't even know, like they don't know who they are. They, they feel like a shell of their former selves. They have to fully rebuild that identity. So you really want to cut off contact. If you do it intermittently, right? So we call this intermittent reinforcement. That's what I was talking about, about the love bombing. It's, it's, you're just kind of getting little spurts, which creates this dopamine response and it's that Mm -hmm. rush. And so you're constantly craving those spurts of dopamine. The problem is you're getting sucked in more and more and more, and it's never going to be what it was. So you have to cut them off, block them on social media, block their friends, block their family. I don't mean just unfriend Mm -hmm. them. I mean, block them. Block them. If you know they go to Starbucks every morning, Sunday at eight o'clock, don't go right? Um, They will do whatever they can to reach out to you. It's not because they miss you. It Mm -hmm. has nothing to do with that. It's because they want to make sure that they can still access you and your, and your emotions. Um, So there's that piece of it. And there's going to be a lot of self-reflection. There's going to be a lot of hard work that you need to do. And as far as dating in the future, one of the things you want to be really cautious of is not repeating the same, and I don't mean this like it's your fault. None of this is your fault. You have patterns of behavior that you need to change. You have patterns of behavior that you need to alter to make yourself, make yourself identity stronger, right? Because when you have a strong sense of identity and you're aware of red flags, you will attract and gravitate towards very different people. Not just in relationships. When somebody leaves a narcissist and I work with them on setting boundaries and I work with them on no contact and I work with them on their pattern. So they'll start dating again and they'll find themselves in the same thing and the same and they'll be aware of it and they'll be able to take a step back from it. And that's such a rewarding thing for them. It's kind of like, oh, I did it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they can also simultaneously think everyone's a narcissist because they're so cautious. And I tell them, good, be cautious. You need to be for right now, right? Like we just started working on these patterns. You should be very cautious right now. Fine. And if it ends because you're too cautious, all right, fine. Then it ends because you're too cautious. But I really recommend people not going and dating soon. I really recommend people being in therapy and having a discussion with their therapist as to like, do you think I'm ready to date? Do I see things accurately now? Because your perception has been so twisted mm-hmm. by the narcissist that you need to make sure you have an accurate perception of yourself. Um, you may feel undeserving of a good relationship. You may feel unworthy of a good relationship. So you really have to work on that stuff first. Um, is it possible for you to have a healthy relationship? 100%. Without question, 100%. So I don't want people to think, you know, I'm never going to find somebody. You are. You got to do the hard work, but you are. And, um, 
it just takes a, it takes a long time because chances are you're working against patterns from childhood. I can guarantee it. You're working against behaviors that you are modeling from, you know, the marriage that you saw, the relationships that you saw. So be patient with yourself. It is a process. You just went through a trauma. I mean, your body's responding as if it's a trauma. And, you know, keep in mind too, when you start dating again, when it becomes intimate, that's a huge trigger for a lot of people who were forced to have sex with their partners. They were raped within their relationships. Um, if they didn't have sex, they they know that they would get, you know, somehow punished the next day. Maybe their car was taken from them or their bank account was closed. So sex is something that's very triggering. Intimacy is something that's very mm-hmm. triggering. And, you know, you, you want to work on that before you get yourself into a situation where you're so activated again. I love that you brought up sex because even the withholding of sex and not feeling like you're attractive and now going into a new relationship and and thinking, well, this person is not going to want me because my ex didn't want me. And I love how you just mentioned, you know, going through the healing process and really doing the work and forgiving yourself for there's nothing wrong with you, but maybe there are some patterns that have to change because I had to do that. There were patterns within myself that I had to relationship. We have to. Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) There's always lessons to be learned. And if you don't learn the lessons, you're doomed to repeat them. And now do I still meet narcissists? Of course I do. And now I'm just better at recognizing the red flags. And if I see a yellow flag, I don't proceed. And now I just cut it off. I trust my intuition more. So you're still going to meet them. It's still going to happen. But can you also meet healthy people as well? Yes. What somebody may be a little bit boring to you because you're nervous system is not being activated now. Now your attachment system is not being activated. It might even seem a little bit boring, but that might be a good sign to, to maybe proceed a little further. Yes. Boring and stable are often confused. Very, they're, they're confused by people who have been through these up downs and their nervous systems are dysregulated. They're used to that. They're waiting for their, yeah, like you said, their attachments have to be activated. There's something, to, just they're waiting for it. And when you're in a relationship where you have that stability, it is interpreted as oftentimes boring or they don't want me. They're not into me because you've associated these highs and lows with passion and love and and it's just not accurate. Yeah. And, and I love that. I think that that's so many great points. And I want to talk about your book because you wrote a book um, that I saw. It's called Find Your Calm. Tell me a little bit about that. Is it out yet? What drove you to start to start that project? So it'll be out officially May 10th. You can pre-order it now on Amazon. So it's it's like a it's like half journal. You write in it and it's very um, behavior based. It's very much based on acceptance and commitment therapy, which is love that an approach where, you know, you'll never hear me say, stop feeling anxious, get rid of your anxiety, or think positive or, you know, positive vibes only. It really is focused on sitting with your discomfort, acknowledging it objectively and letting it pass rather than constantly struggling against it to try to get rid of it. Because people think in order to get rid of something bad, whether it's a thought, it's a feeling, that you need to actively get rid of it. In fact, the way you get, quote, rid of it is by not touching it and just not ignoring it because that's active, right? It's just being with it. So the book focuses a lot on strategies to get you comfortable being uncomfortable so that you don't behave in ways that are 
unhealthy for you to get rid of that discomfort. I love that. I love when I have something that gives me active tools on what to do and tools that I can put in my toolbox so that when I encounter situations, I know what to do. And I think a lot of people, that's what they want. They're dealing with anxiety, they're dealing with mental health, and they don't know what to do. Like we have all these self-help books that are saying like, oh, you can meditate. Well, that's great. But a lot of people, they want to know what to do. Tell them. And I... I love I love how you can write stuff down and maybe even work with yourself. It's almost like self-therapy yeah. in a way, but something that's it accessible to everyone. Right and it's it's ve- exactly like you said. It's very behavior-based. It's very strategy, technique-based, and you can do these things and no one will know you're doing them. So exactly like you said, you interact with someone, you experience a situation, you can use these strategies. It's not love yourself more. Like what does that – when and how and how frequently and and what like to what extent and is it okay if today I don't love myself? Does am I a terrible person? I mean, so it's beha- very behavior based. It's kind of like I'll get people that come into my office all the time that say, "Okay, I know why I do X, Y, and Z. I get it. My parents did this to me. They screwed me up. Now I'm like this. Like I understand the connection. Now what? And so this is like the now what? What do I do? How do I make active changes in my life? So it's it's very behavior based. Um, and it's, it's like I you said, that. it's like a two. I love that. And I'll link the pre-order link for everyone who is interested in getting the book because I think that that's an amazing – and it looks – it's so pretty, by the way. And, you know, we love our pretty, pretty. books. <laughs> it's almost too pretty to write in. I saw it and I was like, oh, I, I don't it. want to write in this. <laughs> it's beautiful. I'm, I'm going to get myself a copy and check it out. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to totally get myself a copy. So um, yeah. if you could give yourself one piece of advice to your younger self – what would that advice be? Yeah. Um, I think I would have to say it's going to be okay. Like it's just, it's, it's going to be okay. doesn't feel like that now, but it's going to be okay. I think that's, that's what I would tell myself, like plain and simple, just, it's going to be okay. That's it. I love that. And I, yeah. and I think that, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? So mm-hmm. I always like to ask my guests what they would, what they would tell their, their younger selves. It, I love learning and I, I love the experience that you bring and you're such a wealth of knowledge, especially in this niche. And there's so many yeah. people that I know are going to get so much out of this episode. So I oh, humbly yeah. thank you for your time and your energy. And I'm going to link everything from your Instagram to the book so everyone can follow you because if you're listening to this episode, chances are you've been through something like this or have known someone who's gone through this. So I'm going to gonna link you so everyone can find you. But thank you so much for coming on the thank show. I appreciate it. This was so fun. This was such a good discussion. Thank you. Yes, it was. Thank you so much. And until next time, see you on the next episode of Diary of an Empath.